Nuclear Decommissioning Contamination When the Department of Energy claims to be cleaning up a nuclear site, they aren't really accomplishing all that they claim they are going to do. That's because once a site, any site, becomes radioactive, it is never not radioactive. The only difference might be in degree. But even worse, once the DOE starts mucking around in a radiologically active site, they might, and often do, make the situation worse. Like in Piketon, Ohio, at the now-defunct Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant that enriched uranium for nuclear weapons from 1954 to 2001. That's where DOE is claiming to clean up the site. But then you hear about problems in the surrounding communities, with radioactive contamination being found that locals are blaming on the cleanup process itself. DOE claims that everything is fine and completely safe in the surrounding communities. Nothing to look at here, folks. But then you listen closely when a genuine expert, a Ph.D. researcher with decades of experience in radiation issues, takes a look at the site and the statistics and the data and points out Enriched uranium, you see its ebbs and flows as DOE does specific activities on the site. When they shut down during COVID, the enriched uranium disappears. When they start back up in the deactivation and decommissioning, it reappears. When they stop in Christmas of 2021, it disappears. When they start the open-air demolition, it takes off on steroids. While it is generally said that correlation is not causation, there looks like a pretty basic 1 plus 1 equals 2 happening here. And when Dr. Michael Ketterer, Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University and formerly with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement, tells you the correlation between so-called cleanup activities and the spread of radioactive particles into your neighborhood from the site, you know that there are problems here the government is not admitting to, and that you are stuck in that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we catch up with the ongoing research work of Dr. Michael Ketterer. He is a professor of chemistry and biochemistry who was formerly with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement. He is the researcher who confirmed the presence of radioactive particles from the Piketon Gaseous Diffusion Plant inside the Zahn's Corner Middle School, 
findings which caused that school to permanently be shut down in 2019. He has more to say about the DOE's cleanup, put that in quotes, of the Piketon site, as well as the shocking discovery he made of radioactive fallout from the Nevada test site in eastern California's Inyo and Mono counties. This has implications for the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than any of the House Republican candidates for Speaker have ever said or, we can bet, will ever say. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 10, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Plymouth, Massachusetts, the environmental release of radioactive wastewater by plant owner Holtec from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Reactor has been a hot topic of conversation at the Board of Health Forum in September. Holtec has been evaporating contaminated wastewater into the atmosphere. In February, they installed heaters to warm up the water so that it could evaporate quicker. There was no informing the public. They just went right ahead. This from Mary Lampert of the environmental NGO Pilgrim Watch. And she added that evaporation is the most dangerous way to get rid of that water because the water is not filtered. It contains all sorts of radionuclides that are poisonous, living long lives right up into the air, and then drops into the bay, and then it winds up as a piece of fish on your dinner plate. In trying to make excuses, one Holtec spokesperson admitted that evaporative releases of radioactive water have occurred continuously since the plant began operations in 1972. In South Carolina, at the V.C. Summer Nuclear Plant near Columbia, small cracks have been found a half dozen times in the past 20 years in pipes that carry fuel to emergency generators that provide cooling waters for a reactor if electricity fails. New cracks were discovered again in a backup emergency fuel line, which grew larger during a 24-hour test of the system last November. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has issued what it calls a preliminary yellow warning, meaning the next highest warning to plant owner Dominion Energy. Yeah, but what are you going to do about it? And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Why is nuclear energy suddenly the domain of glamour pusses? First, Miss America Grace Stanky has become a front for U.S. nuclear energy efforts, drumming up support for nuclear energy as part of a year-long publicity stunt uh, tour to drum up support for nuclear in a younger demographic. With no sense of irony, Stanky, or maybe it's just Stank, claims that it's the industry that saved my dad twice from cancer. Well, maybe its byproducts gave him cancer in the first place. Ever think of that? She also states, it powers 20% of America. No, it's down to 18.2 and going down every year. But I guess your supporters at World Nuclear Association, which had you as a speaker at their symposium in London this year, approves of your overstatements and generalizations. And has probably rigged a really good job for you because you're a nuclear engineering student with a guaranteed post at Constellation Energy in 2024. And then there's Isabel Buemke, 
a model who styles herself as isodope. She calls herself a nuclear energy influencer on social media, and the IAEA, never one to shy away from a way of propagandizing the public, utilized this dope at the Scientific Forum on Nuclear Innovations for Net Zero, September 26th and 27th, as their keynote speaker. Again, her target is young social media socialites. So what do we have here? A dope and a dupe? Camera ready, selfie ready, and promoting nuclear on social media. And that's why ISO dope Isabel Bemke and Miss America Grace Stank, you are jointly this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none nuts of the week. Last Wednesday, October 4th, Russia said that Japan had failed to provide full information on the radioactive water being discharged from the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power plant, despite repeated requests from both Moscow and Beijing. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said, We and China have repeatedly urged the Japanese slide to show transparency and provide all interested states with full access to all information about the discharge of water from the Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant. Japan has not done this. It has failed to properly respond to these issues and to guarantee the absence of a threat, including a long-term one. She added, most of Russia's concerns would be immediately removed if Tokyo stopped the process of draining its waste into the world's oceans, adding that China had expressed the same view. To which Japan says, there, there, Missy, the release is safe, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, an organization which has in its charter the support of nuclear power, has concluded that the impact on people and the environment is, quote, negligible, unquote. And if you believe that, I've got some land in the Chernobyl exclusion zone I'd like to sell you for cheap. In South Korea, the split of positioning about the Fukushima water release between the elected government and the major opposition party continues to make itself known. At the Conference of the Parties to the London Convention and London Protocol, held on October 5th, the Korean government, the elected government, said that Japan's dumping of nuclear-contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean was, quote, reported to have been carried out in accordance with a discharge plan that meets international standards with scientific and technical aspects reviewed by the international community, including the International Atomic Energy Agency. In a game of political linguistic hair-splitting, the representative of Japan reiterated its position that, quote, the discharge through the tunnel which is what takes the water from where it comes out of Fukushima and takes it into the Pacific Ocean, does not constitute dumping at sea as defined by the London Convention and Protocol. Greenpeace, which also attended the meeting, said that serious concerns continue to emerge from the scientific community and we hope that this forum will continue the discussion of contaminated water from the Japanese nuclear power plant. And the beat goes on. In Ukraine, Russians have switched power unit number four of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant from cold shutdown to hot shutdown state, which increases the likelihood of a radiation accident. This according to Ukraine's national agency, Energoatom. At the same time, 
Reactor power unit number six has been taken out of the hot state into the cold one. The president of Energo Atom, Petro Kotin, stressed that such actions by the Russians lead to the inevitable degradation of the plant's equipment and systems, which are important for safety. He said, this can lead not only to an increase in the number of equipment failures, but also to a radiation accident. And more recent word comes that Zaporizhia number 6, which was just put into hot shutdown, has sprung a radioactive leak. In Canada, a dozen nuclear energy experts are calling for a formal risk assessment of emerging nuclear technologies and warning Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that if a company in New Brunswick were to be successful, its product could be used by other countries to make nuclear bombs. The proposed Moltex reactor, built at the site of the Point Le Preux nuclear generating station in St. John, would essentially recycle spent nuclear fuel waste sourced from the Kandu reactors to produce more energy. But the risk is that the plutonium in the used nuclear fuel could be separated and used to make weapons, which is indeed what happened to some of the plutonium India produced and separated that was used in the plutonium-fueled prototype bomb India tested in 1974 and which precipitated the South Asian nuclear arms race. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, nuclear kills two ways, fast and slow. We've all been conditioned to limit our awareness of nuclear dangers to those of the bomb. The fireball, intense heat, mushroom cloud, instant death, just like we saw in the movie Oppenheimer. But what was missing from that movie, and indeed from the awareness of most people, is the danger that comes with the release of ionizing nuclear radiation into the environment, the slow version. You don't need a catastrophic explosion to create the risk to health, safety, and our DNA. The steady release of radiation from uranium mining, uranium refinement, manufacture of weapons and reactor fuel rods, reactor operations, accidents, intentional dumping of radioactive tritium-contaminated water into the Pacific and other bodies of water, And then the forever dangers of used nuclear fuel that is half a million years away from being accurately described as spent. All of this creates ongoing, ever-increasing risks to the health and safety of people and the environment. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We don't mess around with euphemisms and half-truths. Every week we get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context providing you with a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect on mainstream media. But here's the weakness. This show runs on donations, and without them, we're gone. So help us out with a donation of any size. How about $5, the same as you might spend here in the U.S. for a nice cup of coffee and a tip to the barista? Or buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month with a recurring donation of $5, be it one-time or ongoing. Your donation counts. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, which means that your donations are tax deductible. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the red donate button. And if you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Please don't wait. Donate right now. And whatever you can do to help, know that I am deeply grateful you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Dr. Michael Ketterer 
is currently Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University and was formerly with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement. He is the researcher who confirmed the presence in Ohio of radioactive particles from the Piketon Gaseous Diffusion Plant inside the Zahn's Corner Middle School, which then was permanently shut down in 2019. He's also involved in research projects around the country, all of them dealing with radiation exposure and contamination. So we figured it was time to catch up with his many projects, all of which are on the cutting edge of what we know and continue to learn about nuclear contamination on the ground. I spoke with Dr. Michael Ketterer on October 2, 2023. Dr. Michael Ketterer, it's always a pleasure to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks very much, Libby, for uh, the invitation to come here today and talk with you. I enjoy it. We have two major areas of your work to discuss this week, maybe three. So let's start with the story that we've had you talk about on Nuclear Hot Seat before, which is the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio, only 68 miles or 109 kilometers from Columbus, Ohio. What was the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant and what has been the condition of the radioactive waste there? The Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant was a very large facility that was constructed in the 1950s to produce enriched uranium, that is uranium that contains an excess of uranium-235. It made that material in three large buildings through a process called gaseous diffusion. And the site located near Piketon, Ohio is about 3,700 acres. They constructed three large process buildings, which were among the largest structures in the world. The footprint of these buildings is enormous, as you can see from old pictures. And inside there, they used a system known as gaseous diffusion to separate uranium isotopes after it had been converted to uranium hexafluoride. And so this facility produced low enriched uranium for nuclear power reactors and also had the specific mission of producing HEU or highly enriched uranium. They had an X326 building, it was called, that was the highest enrichment end of the gaseous diffusion process that was just recently demolished. And so the site, the plant hasn't operated since 2001. It was put in warm shutdown, then cold shutdown, and then deactivation and decommissioning. And now DOE is moving towards demolishing the three gaseous diffusion plant buildings. With all of that demolition taking place, there's obviously rubble that is radioactive. It can't help but be contaminated. What is the condition of that waste and what's being done to safeguard not only the workers and those on site, but those who live in the surrounding communities? The uh, Department of Energy is conducting the demolition. Uh, well, it conducted, it's, it's finished now, the demolition of the first of the three process buildings in an open air fashion. So what they do is they wet the structure with sprays of water and then they spray on a material called a fixative. It's like a gum or a glue. And the idea is that through the combination of the water and the fixative, dust generation will be suppressed. This is their process for demolishing the buildings. 
many of the community members have called for DOE to not do things this way and to use, instead of open air demolition, to use some kind of enclosed demolition. Obviously that would be slower and much, much, much more expensive, especially considering the sizes of these buildings. These are gigantic buildings. It may not even be practical, but DOE has resisted considering that and has completed the first of the three open air building demolitions. DOE has produced some of its own data and in cooperation with a couple of different Ohio state level agencies, they've been monitoring the air emissions and their prevailing rhetoric is that there really is not anything to be concerned of from the standpoint of the community and the public health and the impacts on the public that lives nearby. Very close by, there was the Zahn's Corner Middle School, and it was found to be contaminated with radioactive technetium-99 from the Portsmouth site, and the school had to be shut down in 2019. So there has been migration off-site of the radioactive contaminants, has there not? Certainly. In fact, since about five years ago is when I started working on environmental samples from the proximity of this plant, you know, it was immediately obvious that there's extensive off-site contamination. We know that it extends well off of site property. Case in point, there's a gentleman, Chick Lawson, his name is, who lives in Lucasville, Ohio. His story was released in the media. He worked with a reporter, Dwayne Pullman, from WKRC Channel 12 in Cincinnati to film sampling dust in his attic, which I found that that contained enriched uranium and Neptunium-237, both of which were from the Portsmouth plant. And this is 10 miles, 10 miles to the south of the plant. The footprint of this place is enormous. Now, Chip Lawson's house was built in the 1950s, and this attic dust is probably, you know, decades worth of accumulation. But I think the other side of the question, Libby, is what really is being emitted today from these open air demolition activities and from the contaminated dust and soil that's just kind of sitting out there on the ground? You know, we know to an extent the answer to that question because there's a local citizen, Elizabeth Lamerson, her name is, who's conducting air monitoring. She has a network of three monitors, which I'm testing. One is on her own property to the east of the facility, and two are on local townships. And I've now analyzed nearly four years of biweekly samples from Elizabeth's monitor. So this is all new stuff. You know, this is not stuff during the plant's operation. But what you see in those results is basically the enriched uranium is the easiest parameter to look at. For me, enriched uranium, you see it ebbs and flows as DOE does specific activities on the site. When they shut down during COVID, the enriched uranium disappears. When they start back up in the deactivation and decommissioning, it reappears. When they stop in Christmas of 2021, it disappears. When they start the open air demolition, it takes off on steroids. One of the things that you wrote about in materials that you shared with me was something called spent trap material. What is it and why did it have to be shipped to Nevada for disposal? Well, um, there's a report called the Spent Trap Media Report. I don't 
want to get the authorship wrong, but that's a publicly accessible document. You can post it on the website for the show. But Spent Trap Media, what that is about is during the decade 2010 to 2020, DOE was in the process of decontaminating and disassembling the gaseous diffusion process equipment inside the building. The DOE developed a process that they called LTLT, and it refers to long time low temperature. And what they would do is they would seal up sections of the gaseous diffusion plumbing. They would inject these very, very corrosive chemicals like bromine trifluoride and chlorine trifluoride and a bunch of other things. And then they would try to get the solidified, they would heat up these sections, they try to get the solidified uranium deposits internal to the plumbing to turn back into a vapor, and then it would be drawn out by a vacuum pump through a trap. And this stuff, the spent trap media, reflects that's what's collected in those traps as they're doing that LTLT process. Now, the trapping is not perfect. So this same stuff is going into the air. It shows up. In fact, you can see huge spikes in the airborne technetium-99 in 2014 to 2016 when DOE was doing a lot of this LTLT. Later on, as this was going on, DOE determined that this spent trap media had too high levels of radioactivity to put in the on-site waste disposal facility, so it had to be sent to the Nevada National Security Site, it's called, on the Nevada test site, I believe. The report characterizes the fingerprint or signature of the radionuclides going into the air. It's kind of saying this is the characteristic stuff that people are being exposed to at some level in the air. This is a concentrated version of that, but it's the same as they're releasing into the air, or they were at that time. So this is not really a very pleasant type of material to envision having in the ambient air. There's much more to talk about regarding Piketon and the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant and everything that's going on there. And there are also issues regarding the announcement that production of high assay, low enrichment uranium, or HALU, will begin there starting this month, October of 2023. We'll have an interview on that specific issue in a few weeks. I'm working to set that up now. But for now, Michael, I'd like to switch topics and talk about your most recent findings on the disposition of Nevada test site plutonium. We have been told for decades that because of prevailing winds, when the 100 atmospheric tests took place at the Nevada test site, the radiation was all blown eastward. And so those of us here on the West Coast, especially in California, didn't really have to worry about that. Now, there are some new findings. Why don't you fill us in? I've always been curious about the problem of where did the stuff from the Nevada tests go? I've been interested in plutonium in environment, and I live in the Western U.S., have lived in the Western U.S. for a long time. And so this is kind of like my laboratory. And I've always been interested in the question of where did the Nevada test site fallout go? So I've been working on this topic since 2001, approximately. I referred you to a paper that I have from 2008 
with a group from uh, UNLV and US EPA and so on, where we looked at this. And indeed, you're right. We can study the plutonium isotopes. From its isotope fingerprint, we can distinguish what comes from Nevada versus the global background. And we can see the prevailing pattern of where it goes. And absolutely, you know, if you look in the downwind direction in parts of Nevada, east of the Nevada test site, in southwestern Utah, and in the northern strip of Arizona, in western Colorado, in those places, indeed, you can find there's evidence from these isotope fingerprints that some of the plutonium, or in some cases, most of the plutonium is coming from the Nevada test site. Now, I've always thought it's just not really that simple. I mean, there's stories such as the rain out in Troy, New York, which happened after one particular test. There was an April 1953 large test, above ground test in Nevada. And uh, that fallout seemed to interact with a cloud and a lot of it got rained out and just happened to be detected by chance by a physics professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute who was wandering around campus one morning after it had rained with a handheld survey meter, like a Geiger counter. And all of a sudden he said, what's wrong with this place? And the narrative came out that he uh, had detected a Nevada test site rainout events. Now, you mentioned California, and that brings me to what I've got to say today. That same curiosity brought me to, I happened to be going on a trip from Flagstaff to the Bay Area by car, and I drove up Highway 395 right through this, I call it Eastern Sierra's section of California in um, Inyo and Mono counties, those two counties in particular. Highway 395. I happened to be going through there and the curiosity got the better of me. This is in 2008. I went and took some samples along the way. And when I got back to the laboratory, I subjected them to isotopic analysis. And I said, wow, there's a lot of Nevada fallout here. The reason I said, wow, is because we're measuring with mass spectrometry. This is what I do at Northern Arizona University. We measure the ratio of 240 plutonium atoms to 239 atoms. And that's a fingerprint of where the plutonium came from. If you get a 0.18, that's the global background. If you get a 0.05 or so, that's like pure Nevada fallout. On the other hand, in this area of the Eastern Sierras, I took a few happenstance samples and found ratios in some places of 0.08 suggesting that, you know, like 75% of the plutonium here is from Nevada. So this led to a further and systematic study that I worked on for a couple of years and made multiple trips from Flagstaff to the Eastern Sierras. I involved a good number of students at Northern Arizona University, undergraduate students who worked with me on this. And we assembled a pretty complete study that's, you know, it's been sitting dormant, I'm sorry to say, but it is close to being submitted for a peer-reviewed publication. There is very solid evidence that there's a pretty good plume of upwind fallout from the Nevada test site in these two counties of Eastern California, Inyo County and Mono County. 
The significance here is if you find plutonium in the soil in these places today, and you know, I'm talking about forested areas, mostly where we sampled is in the national forest, near the little towns of Bishop, Independence, Lone Pine, those are three that come to mind, near those places in the forests, the soil there has got, in some cases, elevated levels of plutonium. And, and more importantly, the results are showing that in many, many areas, most of the plutonium, 75% or more of the plutonium is coming from the Nevada test site. Interesting anecdote I remember from one of the trips, I talked to a guy who was this was near Mount Whitney, like at the trailhead to the Mount Whitney Trail. I talked to a guy, older gentleman, who he said he was a ranger at the time of the tests in the Nevadas. He was a forest ranger, you know, a young person at that time, and he would go up the Mount Whitney Trail to watch the tests. And wow. he, he could see the tests from there. And in some cases, he thought, yeah, it, I told him what we were doing. And he thought, mm, yeah, I, I bet you that, that you're right, that some of the time the clouds blew over this way. And interestingly enough, there's a paper that's out in preprint form by a Sebastian Philippe from uh, Princeton University and a number of co-authors. And they have a way of tracking day-to-day weather patterns for specific days and dates in the past. And they can see the transport of plumes from the Nevada test site. And I'm taking kind of an opposite approach we're looking in 2023 or, you know, maybe an earlier year, but we're looking at what there is today in the soil. So what I'm talking about with the plutonium ratios, that's ground truthing. Where did it go? You can model however you would like, and sometimes that's very useful, but these results are showing where it is today. And the conclusion is inescapable that there's a footprint in these two counties of California, to me, it looks very much like the known contaminated areas in Southern Nevada and Southern Utah and so on that the government has acknowledged are contaminated from NTS. I don't recall hearing about any kind of activism, anti-nuclear activism taking place in those two counties, in Inyo and Mono County in northeastern California. That's not considered to be an activist hotbed. However, it would be interesting to crunch the numbers on the cancer rates there. And what that brings up is what implications might this have for the currently being considered by Congress expansion and extension of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act? First of all, about the community, I would say that chances are no one there is even aware of this. And no environmental group anywhere has really even considered this possibility. We've all just sort of accepted the narrative that, yeah, the fallout went in this direction. This is direct evidence that's saying, well, that's correct, except for this, this particular spot. In terms of policy implications, I think they're pretty serious. I mean, from the standpoint of what I'm seeing here in these soils, these two counties, parts of them were hit just as hard as, say, a place like St. George, Utah. Which was enormous. 
Yes, yes. And we know, say, for example, the story of John Wayne in the film The Conqueror that was shot in this uh, snow canyon area that was shown to be contaminated with Nevada test site fallout. Chances are the impact is considerable if I'm seeing this clear of a signal, so to speak, from the plutonium isotopes that very similar to what's in the southern Nevada and southern Utah impacted counties, that the same kind of level of impact must exist. And so I think that from the standpoint of the data that I'm seeing, I'll put it in simple terms. These two counties ought to be considered for being included in RECA, Radiation Exposure and Compensation Act. And I'll go one further than that. Kevin Kiley is the Congress representative of California's third district. Third district. Is that what encompasses Mono and Inyo counties? Yes. Kevin Kiley is the congressional representative for the district that includes, it looks like from the map, the entirety of both of these counties. And Mr. Kiley is on at least one of the committees that currently has the House bill, the House version of the RICA bill, which is the version that's currently being hotly contested, which just had a huge lobbying effort that we have on a previous week's show. So he is actually on that committee. Yes. What I'm referring to, I don't have the House bill number, but around the time that the Senate version of RICA was passed by a bipartisan vote, Representative Teresa Leger Fernandez from New Mexico, Democrat from New Mexico's third district, she submitted a House version of this, and it's been referred to three different committees, House Judiciary, Energy and Commerce, and Education and Workforce. And Representative Kiley and Representative Leger Fernandez are on one of the committees together that needs to consider this bill. I am hoping that Representative Kiley can be implored to uh, look at his own district, the impact it received from Nevada. Have you been in touch with Representative Kiley? I have not. I just sort of figured out who were the players and where the legislation was uh, yesterday while I was sitting on the couch looking at my phone. Well, this will be a breakthrough for Nuclear Hot Seat because... This is important information to get to someone, whether he has been in favor of RICA expansion, extension or not. This makes it personal. It does, you know, and I think, you know, while it may be too late for the legislation as it stands and the evidence is, you know, basically my word on an unpublished paper. I think the point here is it shouldn't be once and done with RICA. If we can pass the current version of RICA, I think that's a good thing. If we can insert more areas that should be considered, those should really be based on the science. I think the science says clearly that a place like Inyo and Mono County should be included. I'm also in agreement with all of New Mexico being included in RICA. What are your plans for this information about Mono and Inyo counties and what you have discovered there? For posterity's sake, it deserves to go into a scientific paper. I sent it to a colleague at NAU, Northern Arizona University, to look at it. And he wrote me back and said, you need to do that, pal. And I take those words to heart. That needs to be done. But I don't think it can wait 
for that publication process to try to bring this to attention in policymaking. So I don't have the ear of really anybody in Congress, but I can do my best at that. However, I'm in touch with a number of groups that you know, might have access to Representative Teresa Lega Fernandez from New Mexico, the author, so to speak. Teresa Leger, L-E-G-E-R, Fernandez, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-Z. She is the main author of H.R. 4426. And that is the extension and expansion of RICA in the House version of the bill that has already been passed by the Senate. That's right. That's right. So you have asked, what should I do here? I think it's highly important and a critical thing in terms of timeliness for this kind of information to be brought to policymakers' attention ASAP. And I will take it upon myself to try to contact uh, Representative Kylie, however I can do it. I know people who would have access to Representative Fernandez from New Mexico. I can try to work things that way. My congressional representative, where I vote in Colorado, Joe Neguse, I don't necessarily have his ear, but he's on one of the committees that we need. You know, the ball is kind of in the court of the Republicans, and that's why I mentioned someone like Representative Kiley. He's got a chance here to do something big for RICA and for his own district. You know, sometimes there's surprises in this. I wouldn't have guessed that Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, would have advocated for the Coldwater Creek affected zone. Speaking of affected zones, there's one other area where your work has been focused lately, and that is New Mexico and the Trinity site and the impact on downwinders. Tell us about your work there. I became interested in this, and I'm kind of regretting not having it cross my radar screen. It's another one of those things like Portsmouth that I could have, would have, should have gotten into earlier. But earlier in 2023, I became focused on the Trinity site and learning more about it. And uh, I could see the RECA process unfolding in the political scene. And I also knew we were coming up on the public attention with the film Oppenheimer and so on. So I read a paper from the U.S. government, Beck and Simon, that is in health physics from 2020. I wanted to do some ground truthing of their model, but I also want to uh, give credit to my friends at Nuclear Watch New Mexico, Jay Coglin and Scott Kovac, because they pushed me a little bit to get into this, or they encouraged me. And I set out on my own, and I've done two rounds of fieldwork in New Mexico, focusing to an extent on the areas north and east of the Trinity site, where the government's peer-reviewed papers were showing, yes, there's fallout there. And in simple terms, yes, there's fallout from Trinity in those places. I will agree with that part of it. But what I've also done is to try to extend upon that to the Tularosa Basin area, the towns of Carrizoso and uh, Tularosa and that corridor on the highway where there are some people living. And in the areas in the mountains to the east of there, there's towns like Capitan and Ruidoso and Alto and a number of other ones. And there's also the Mescalero Apache Nation up there. 
You know, there's a lot of areas where people live and may have been affected in the past. And now I'm bringing to bear in these new studies, I'm trying to see, you know, using plutonium isotopes as a litmus test, what's from Trinity in these areas versus what is from the global background. I think that needs to be done. The distribution of plutonium in New Mexico is something that is affected by the Trinity site. It's probably affected in parts of the state from the Nevada test site. I don't know what to say about Los Alamos. Uh, they've reported their plutonium has gone downstream into Cochiti Lake. So there might be an effect near their property. At any rate, I think What's really needed is a better understanding of where did the fallout go? Where is it now in 2023? Have people been harmed by it? And potentially, is there a possibility of further harm in the future? And for all those reasons, we will continue to stay in touch with you, Michael Ketterer, to learn this cutting edge research that you are doing, what your findings are, and start to suss out what the implications are, both for national policy and for the health of the people who live in proximity. That sounds great. I will look forward to it. Michael Ketterer, as always, it is a pleasure and amazingly enlightening to talk with you and have you as a guest here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Thank you, Levy. And uh, I look forward to returning. And uh, maybe someone out there will hear something about the plume in California and we'll take it up as something to work on. Dr. Michael Ketterer. He's a bit digitally shy and doesn't have either a website or social media accounts. We're working on him about that. But there is a link to contact him via email up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 642. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. One of the best sources I have found for information about what's going on in Japan is Nuke Info Tokyo. This is a compendium of articles and links that comes out every other month. The current issue, which is September-October for 2023, is up. It's Nuke Info Tokyo number 216, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 642. And hey, for all of you job hunters out there looking for a nuclear-related job, Stanford University is seeking candidates for a new faculty position, an expert in nuclear security, arms control, nuclear energy, nuclear proliferation, nuclear terrorism, national security law or international humanitarian law as related to nuclear issues, or specialists on related topics. This will be for the rank of associate professor or professor in a Stanford department or school, such as senior fellow on a continuing term with an endowed chair at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Faculty from engineering and the physical sciences are especially encouraged to apply. So if you want to do this work, get paid really well for it, and have some serious creds to apply, let Stanford University know. The awards ceremony for the Nuclear Free Future Awards for 2022 will be held via Zoom this Friday, October 13. Friday the 13th is always a good luck day for me. And I will be receiving my award along with Tanzanian activist Anthony Liamunda and German researcher Malte Gutsche. 
and the tables will be turned on me as I will be interviewed by Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. The ceremony will take place starting at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's this Friday the 13th, and we will have a link up on the website where you can register to watch the ceremony. Update on Nuclear Hot Seat files. They have been transferred out of my storage space into a hopefully secure, not rat-infested storage space, with many thanks to Joe Green for her assistance lugging the boxes. But it's not over, as rent on the storage space has to be met, and I'm still looking for a permanent archive to take the files. If you have any thoughts, connections, or solutions to offer, donations also welcomed, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. All input will be appreciated. And here's a big honking activist shout-out. I attended the world premiere of SOS, San Onofre Syndrome, on Sunday, October 8, at the Awareness Film Festival. Attending the showing in the theater was like a homecoming, as many of the articulate activists who were featured in the film were there, including Gary and Lori Hedrick of San Clemente Green and urban planner Torgan Johnson and his beautiful family. Through the film, we watched as his kids grew up over the course of the 12 years of shooting, from infant and toddler to poised, not yet but right on the brink, adolescence, speaking on mic, directly addressing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission in a public meeting, speaking truth to power, and doing a great job of it. To find out how the filmmakers were doing, here are some brief comments from the three directors of the film, recorded just before it showed as part of the Awareness Film Festival. Mary Beth Brangan, Jim Heddle, and Morgan Peterson. Mary Beth Brangan, film director, SOS, San Onofre Syndrome. The film is about to have its world premiere in about two and a half hours. What is this like for you? Electrifying. (laughs) I feel like I could cry. I'm so happy. Jim Heddle. You are one of the directors of tonight's film, SOS San Onofre Syndrome, which is about to have its world premiere. What is this like for you after 12 plus years of work? It's an amazing experience because we worked for so long without knowing whether A, we could ever finish the film, or B, how it would be received. And so far, it's finished and it's being warmly received all over the place. Mary Beth, my co-director, is an activist at heart. And probably the highest praise we've gotten so far is that an organizer with 138 activist groups in the East, in New York, saw the film and said, SOS is made for activists. That's high praise. Because the purpose of making the film is to help create social change. The nuclear issue is probably the most existentially important issue right now because it ties into war, the permanent war economy, nuclear weapons, so on. We're addressing really the nuclear waste issue in this film, but there's a much larger complex that this is a part of. We think of it as the nuclear enterprise, and it includes weapons and energy as well as waste. In fact, you could say energy, weapons, and waste is the real nuclear triad. 
I'm talking with Morgan Peterson, who is the third of the triad of directors who put together SOS San Onofre Syndrome. The movie is going to be shown in about an hour in its world premiere. What is this like for you? Oh my goodness. This is the accumulation of years of work. And it's funny because I kind of felt like nothing for when we, I first heard we're getting a premiere and that means that we're pretty much done, that this is, we've wrapped this film. And so I was like, oh, I, I feel like I should feel something. And then I woke up today just so excited. I'm so ready to show this to the world and to get it out there and to get the message out because we are essentially running out of time. We've We've really run out of time, and it's important that people know about this, especially in this area, which is Southern California. This is what the film is about. This is the community that's affected. So it's time to get it out there and inform and hopefully also take people on a journey. If people wish to, for their NGO or their organization or their nonprofit or whatever, if they wish to book a showing of SOS San Onofre Syndrome, what do they need to do? Who do they contact? So I would go to our website, sananofrefilm.com. Use the contact form there. You'd want to go through Mary Beth, our producer, director extraordinaire, who does pretty much everything in that realm. But I think that you should be able to contact the filmmakers through the website. I'm here with Lori and Gary Hedrick, who were principal movers in the efforts to get San Onofre shut down and everything that has happened since that time and are featured in the film SOS San Onofre Syndrome. What was it like to watch the film and see the entire story unfold before you? Well, first of all, it was like a family reunion to see all those faces and some of the people aren't with us anymore, so it's kind of sad, but we also realized, you know, all of those little tidbits of actions and activism and efforts we made over those 12 years, they never seemed to amount to that much. It was just a little bit here and there and three minutes of the microphone. And then you see all those components built into one story and you realize how much impact that has possibly. I mean, I could never tell anyone our story the way the documentary does. And it's so relevant to any kind of crisis where people power is the essence. If we learned anything, it's about the people power and the bonds of humanity that keeps us together through thick and thin. So I think that's what will come through the movie, not just the immediate threat of our nuclear waste, but you know how important those relationships are to getting things done and sticking together. That was my input. What about you, Lori? What do you think of the first time you saw it? Well, I couldn't agree more about telling the story. I thought that was such a great you know, presentation of what, what went on all those years. I also always feel like the silver lining of this whole effort is the wonderful friends we've made through this. And most of all, in the movie, I just adored the Torgan's kids, the Johnson kids. I thought that really brings it home what this is all about and who this is for. And to watch them go from those little kids to speaking at the podium at one of the meetings was it just really touches my heart it almost brought tears to my eyes actually (laughs) at the end the whole movie was pretty incredible what do you hope will be the upshot of this film now being done and going out into the world it gives me hope because it feels like when the shutdown occurred 
and there were a lot of little things going on, and all of a sudden they all came together at once, and the next thing you knew, Edison was shutting down. And I have that feeling again with all of the components, with the movie and other activities, that I just get the sense that there's an opportunity for change here where we could really create a hot cell and a place to store the waste away from the ocean and preserve opportunities for future generations. If we don't do that, then we're very lost. Mary Beth Brangan, Jim Heddle, Morgan Peterson, Gary, and Laurie Hedrick. The film was very well received, winning the Grand Jury Award for Documentary Feature, the top award. Within 24 hours, it was accepted as one of the films for the 2024 International Uranium Film Festival Tour of the United States and Canada. The film will be available on a live stream as of Friday, the 13th of October, and we will have that information up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 642. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 10, 2023. By now, you should realize it's not in your best interest to miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, and getting it couldn't be easier. You can find it, of course, on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase and help us with our database. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, you can't miss it, put in your first name and an email address, and every week you will get one email, just one, with the link and a short description of that show's content. It's the easiest way for you to get the show as soon as it posts. I'm always on the outlook for stories, especially those that perhaps I haven't been able to cover yet on the show because I didn't know about them. And when it comes to nuclear, there are always more stories. So if you know of something, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we always really need your support. Anything helps and we deeply appreciate it. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, the name of the guest whose comments you use, and me. Doesn't take you that long. Took me longer to explain it than it will for you to include it. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat and Hardestry Communications, reminding you... Reminding you that every nuclear reactor is a dirty bomb on the ground, in your neighborhood, just down the street, contaminated with radioactive particles that by today's technologies can never be cleaned up, no matter what the Department of Energy says or promises. There you've got it. You have just had your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.